is a podcast that watch Christmas. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of If This Is A Podcast Then What's Christmas. Today it is my great pleasure to have a chat with my good friend Kenny Gravillis, whose company Gravillis Inc. is responsible for some of the best movie posters out there today. If you have a look on the blog, you'll see some of the examples or link through to his site. You can see everything there. He works on everything from the latest Star Wars movie to independent documentaries, but his work's never less than brilliant. So um, I thought it was worth a chat for that alone. But I think what's equally interesting, if not more so, is the unusual route he took to to end up doing that. I mean, he started off in in southeast London um, without any kind of graphic design background and then built up his skills in that area, ended up designing some of the most iconic album covers of all time for Def Jam in the early 90s and then for other artists in the late 90s and early 2000s. So hopefully you'll find his story uh, really inspiring but also, you know, the creativity that he applies to his work. And on top of all that, um, he's a lovely bloke. So I hope you enjoy our chat as much as I did. Cheers. Cool. I mean, we might as well just go right into it then. So, um, if that's cool with you. Uh, And I think just uh, what's great is, because I remember talking to you about this before, but can you just explain a little bit about how you went from London to New York. How how did things start and and get to where they got to? So um, I think that the, the interesting thing. I, so I went to school um, in East London. I actually went to George Green, actually on Isle of Dogs, George Green School. Um, um, and I, you know that was back in eighty five when I when I was going to be graduating. I don't know why. To be honest, to this day, I still don't really know. But um, it seemed like there was a guaranteed job in a bank. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Like when you left school, you know, once you go with that sixth form, it just seemed like there was a guaranteed bank job waiting for you, hundred percent. Like it was like they had a an in with all the banks in, in London. I don't know what the deal was, but um, and I just know I didn't want to do that. I didn't know why I necessarily wanted to. I just know I didn't want to do that for whatever reason. Um, but so I had a cousin who worked at, um, he was a designer and he, he worked for like almost like it was a magazine conglomerate. It was like a bunch of magazines. Um, and I remember going to, I was like 14. And I remember going to his office um, and I was just blown away. I went in there and there was all these drawing boards and like people having fun. It was like just the whole world that just felt like this is this is awesome. I don't know. There's something about it I was super attracted to. So I, I'd go there and then I remember them moving to Docklands and uh, I remember going into their new offices and again, this is all pre-computer. So um, yeah, it was just amazing. I was just like so transfixed by that. So I went to, you know, I was like, how do I do this? And my cousin was like, well, you know, you should try to go to art school. So I went to my art teacher and told her, I was like, hey, I think I want to go to art school. And, she, and I wasn't like an amazing illustrator or anything like that. So she was like, okay, well, we need to kind of get your stuff sort of ready. Um, and anyway, then it became about this, like, I think I needed three O-levels to get in. To, I was at East Ham College of Technology at the time. So I needed three O-levels. Um, and I felt pretty confident <clears throat> that I was going to do 
levels, and yeah, I've started at East Ham. And I, even though it's weird, I um, I felt really good actually starting art school and not like like a bunch of my friends going into that whole bank job situation. Um, so yeah, and art school was great. Uh, you know, I and I actually I did done. I was supposed to do four years. And I ended up just doing two. Um, and again, I think that my cousin had a lot to do with that as well because while I was at art school, I was still working. I would go to his place and work there, and I just. I liked the idea of getting right into work. You know, I didn't want to just be one of those school, like just serial school people. Um, um, so I wanted to get working. So yeah, that was the deal. And then I was done after those two years. It was 87. And my dad actually, my parents split up when I was much younger. My dad lived in New York. And I actually, honestly, my goal was in 87 was that summer, I was going to spend three months in New York and then come back to London and basically start my design career. That was, what was supposed to happen, at least. And, and what did happen? <laughs> <laughs> so what was actually, so what was really funny was that my goal was, I brought my portfolio to New York and I was like, all I wanted to do was just go around Manhattan to go to different interviews. That was all I wanted to do. It wasn't like, I didn't really need, want, let's say, need a job. It was like, I really just wanted to like learn the city. And I had a cousin, I had some cousins out there. I, it was really about having a good time in New York and, learn the city, kind of go to different places, and just really, that was really it. So I must have, I must have uh, made about 20, 25 different interviews. And what was really funny at the time, so 87, you have to imagine, not a lot of black English people <laughs> in New York City, <laughs> right? So it was, so I was on the phone, again, no cell phones, right? There's no, there's no video conferencing. So I'm on the phone making these appointments and, you know, they're really thinking, you know, Hugh Grant type is on the other line, basically. <laughs> so they don't know what's going on. So I would, this happened so many times that it became a joke for me where I actually started playing with it, where I would get to the place and first the receptionist was usually shocked, but she, or usually there was, there was like this kind of a, you know, oh, okay, great, you know, take a seat. But then the funny, the funniest thing was always the person that would come out to greet me. That was the funny thing. Now, mind you, I have a, a massive portfolio. It's not like, you know, it's not, it's not like I'm, you know, just sitting there. I have like a massive portfolio. And they would come, they would see me, they would look at the receptionist and say, yep, yeah, so where, where is he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be, you'd, all, you'd always see the slight point of the finger for the receptionist where like it was a pullback of not trying to be obvious about it you know what I'm saying or or the eye side my direction <laughs> I mean it happened so much that it was it was comical to be honest um, and I, I honestly I, didn't, I wasn't even upset because I was like I get it it's like you know these guys are not used to this you know what I mean they, just, they don't get it they're not used to it um, and, and some of them just blatantly said it they were like <laughs> Guy, 
Um, oh, dude, and this is when I knew I was in New York, by the way. It was really fun. So I went to this one interview, and I remember they're, they're being really impressed, and they're saying, hey, you, you know, um, and I didn't have a green card, of course, and they were like, um, they offered me this job, and they were like, and this is where I really found out about sort of the bullshit of New York City at the time. So they offered me a job, and they offered me a job for $12,000 a year. And they're like, this is what we would give our, co- our college grads here. Like, so don't forget right now, I'm 18, right? So I'm technically high school, ending high school age for them, even though I'm done with college. So they're like, you know, you're very mature for 18. And, you know, technically, this is what we give our college grads. And it was like $12,000 a year. So I remember going back to my dad and saying, Dad, they gave me a job, $12,000 a year. And he's like, okay, you know, great. I was like, oh, dude, I'm super, super happy. Then I got another call that same exact day. <laughs> from a different company and this company actually liked it all more because it was an English guy that was running it and he was a trade director so they offered me a job on the same exact day and they were like they were like yeah so obviously we can't pay you a lot we can only pay you 14,000 and I was like (laughs) (laughs) I was like like the other company made 12,000 seem like the world right and then like this company's like we can't really pay you a lot and I was like Sure, understand. Yep, sounds good. Okay, <laughs> but then like that—that that was my like, ah, uh, okay, the bullshit of New York City. Uh, I'm gonna get there. I'm gonna understand it. You know, but that was like my first little lesson in it. You know, how they like made me feel like the twelve thousand was so much, and then this company came a little, a little with fourteen. Like, so we can't pay you that much. And I was like, and then actually, there's a even further deal to that story. Um, um, what a designer, Julia, came into the company that I actually end up going with. And we were talking, and he mentioned the other company that he'd interviewed, the one that offered me 12 grand. And he literally said, it's almost like he knew, he didn't, but he said, he was like, yeah, it only offered me 18. <laughs> <laughs> and it just like dug the knife, you know, even further. I'm like, like, wow, okay, New Yorkers, okay, I gotta, I gotta remember that, you know. I got to realize where I'm at. You know, yeah, growing yeah. up in London, we weren't. It wasn't. That wasn't like we weren't about all that stuff. So, it was, yeah, it was an interesting education, to be honest. Right. So, so you're you're now like entry level at, at like a graphic design company. Yeah, in I'm in, I'm, yeah, I'm entry level. Um, um, entry level. I go in there. It was. I was there for a year. It was. An, it was kind of a nightmare, but. Oh, actually, I don't know if I even told you this story. It's so funny, like, when afterwards, when you think about certain things. So I was a, you know, massive movie file. So in the 80s, um, like, right now, I probably could kill a Jeopardy 80s trivia film thing, like, hardcore, right? So I used to watch it. I would go to the video store, like, constantly. And I was looking at this place, and, um, but I was, like I said, going to the video store, I got really friendly with the video owner. And then he asked me, um, he's like, what do I do? And I told him I was a graphic designer. And then I know this is a story is going to sound absolutely crazy. And I'm going to seem incredibly gullible, but I kid you not, this is exactly where my head was at at the time. So he says to me, he says, um, hey, can you make labels? And I was like, labels for what? He's like, no, for the cassette. He's like, if I gave you a label, could you copy it? I said, yeah, totally. And I literally, thought, and he's like, I could pay you actually to copy these labels. Like, you know, um, he's like, basically, I'm going to, you know, I'm 
time is a video, a VHS costs like $90, right? And basically, he's going to make copies of them and then just add these labels on. And I was like, sure, I can do that. I did not catch anything wrong with that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't like, oh, wait, this is <laughs> somewhat suspect. I, I was so just like bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, right? But literally, I just do not. For must, it must have been, okay, if I was there a year, I was there for people life for a year so maybe like six or seven months right i kid you not i go in early and i'm talking i'm not even hiding this by the way i'm going in early using like uh letter set using stack cambridge and i'm making these labels and i'm getting paid like an extra 200 bucks you know to, to doing this so i remember one day i was doing it and then <laughs> our director who didn't like me by the way um <laughs> She came in early and she saw what I'm doing. She's like, Kenny, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm making labels. <laughs> I mean, she was like, oh, I'm making VHS labels for, for my video. <laughs> she literally looked at me like I was, had 10 heads. <laughs> and she didn't say anything. She didn't say a word. And next thing I know, my boss calls me in. <laughs> And I swear to you, he was like, and he was English, he was like, Kenny, so um, it's been brought to our attention that you're making VHS labels. And I was like, yeah. I said, I don't do it on <laughs> office time, I do it when I come in. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he's like, Kenny, he's like, we can't have you do that. You know, he's like, that's, that's not good, you can't do that, you got to stop doing that. I was like, what? I was like, really? And he's like, I was like, oh, okay. I just remember thinking, oh, what? A, well, I'm not going to say what I thought in my brain growing up in England about homegirl. But I was like, oh, anyway. So I had to go to my to my video guy and say, hey, man, so sorry. <laughs> but I'm afraid can't be doing that anymore. He was gutted, by the way. I'm not surprised. <laughs> nice earner <laughs> down, down the left. But anyway, it wasn't long after that they let me go. It's funny. I got, so I got let go. Um, my first sort of let going um, um that was like okay and then um and after that actually it was really funny so after that i did the whole um, um new york thing and i remember getting this job my next job i, I totally sort of just scammed right i scammed it i was making 25 grand by the way like i totally scammed i was making 25 grand i had an office on like Literally, it was on Fifth Avenue, uh, and I had American Express card. Wow. And I totally, it was one of those, like, after when I got the job, I was like, fuck. <laughs> because I knew <laughs> it was way over my head. <laughs> and I lasted about two months before they realized I did not know what the fuck I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> like, I remember going into... It was Christmas time, and I remember going into the office, and everyone was talking about bonuses, and I knew I was just failing miserably. I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to get a bonus? And as soon as I get there, it's like my boss, her boss, and it's a guy in a suit. <laughs> and, I, and I looked at him, and I was like, and literally, he told me, I swear, these are the exact words verbatim, and I still remember, he's like, Ken's going to have to terminate you. And I was like, <laughs> I looked at my boss, and I was like, uh, as in fire? 
<laughs> I can't even. I don't even understand the terminology. So we're gonna have to terminate you. I was like, um, okay. Um, but yeah, dude, that was literally the first. So it was an absolute shit show for those first couple of years in New York because I think it was altogether. I, I had four jobs total, and I either got fired or let go from all of them. And the last one was really funny because it was like a headhunter found it, you know, and. Um, I remember being there. This is all packaging design. And um, I remember being there for about a month and then overhearing the creative director say, well, we don't want to keep him. <laughs> and then I called up I called up my mate when I got home. This whole English guy lived in New York. And I said, listen, I heard him say they don't want to keep him. Do you think they were talking about me? He's like, they were absolutely talking about you. <laughs> like, like a total English, like, oh my like, you know, like, absolutely tell you as it is. It's like, you know, they're absolutely talking about you, Kenny. I was like, fuck, okay. But, yeah, that was like, and then they, of course, they let me go, fired me. So, yeah, man, four jobs between 87 and the uh, beginning of 89, man. It was a, a bit of a, a bit of a shit show at the start there. Okay, so... um is is it are there many more steps in in this progress to Def Jam? Yeah, so basically, what ended up happening um, um, was, you know, it's funny. I, my dad, my dad was like, he was like, "So you sure you want to do this design? <laughs> 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 Are you sure you want to do this design design thing?" I was like, "Yeah," I was like, "I think so." And then and I kind of had this, like, moment where I was like, okay, you know, four jobs, I'm not really feeling this. Like, I really have to stop. Like, what am I really into? You know? Um, okay, let me decline now. Can you hear me? Sorry, yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, so, yeah, it's four jobs. I was like, I really need to um, figure this out. Like, what am I doing right now? And it really became about what am I actually passionate about? That's really what started the whole thing. Like, what am I actually into? You know, and that, I think that's like, would be my, that's always my big advice to any young designer. It's kind of like, dude, find somebody you're actually into doing. Because design is very broad. You know, there's all mm. different types of design. It's like, you know, I was working on mock apple juice, right? And I fucking hated it. Uh, no offense to mocks. But, you know, like dealing with the mocked yellow for four months was just not cool. You know what I mean? Like, I just, it wasn't, wasn't interesting. So, I love music. I love movies. Those are the two things that I really, really was into. Um, so, I ended up, what I, I think I was looking at a Luther Vandross CD. <laughs> I, think, I think the album was, <laughs> I think it was Give Me The Reason. Yes. And, uh, yeah, and I looked at that album and I was just like, and I saw at the back of the Sony, Sony Music and I just called them, you know, and the, the weird thing is, is like, Somehow, I end up getting this creative director high level, and I didn't even know how high he was at the time. Um, this is just me, you know, the universe looking out for me here because I somehow got a meeting with this guy. I'll never forget it because it, it was really the meeting that changed my whole career because when I went there, uh, all I had in my portfolio was, um, you know, what the apple juice shit. You know what I'm saying? Basically, everything I've worked on these last two years. Uh, that I pretty much hated, actually. So that's all I had in my portfolio. And I get there, and I'm with him, and he's like, 
very creative directory. All black, no shoes, you know, black turtleneck, <laughs> walking very upright, you know, like he was like totally one of those guys. So I was really intimidated just right off the bat. But anyway, we have this we have this talk and he's looking through my work and he's like, you know, he's you know, back then those portfolios with the plastic sleeves and he's like going through, going through and all of a sudden some artwork comes in, like someone brings some artwork. Now, back then, of course, no computers, so it's real shit, it's like real actual artwork. So he's looking at the artwork, then he goes back to my portfolio, he starts flipping again, and then I notice he's looking at the artwork, but flipping my portfolio. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, this is not going well, because he's not even looking at the work anymore. Right. And uh, so then he says, like, almost like he knew that I noticed, just pops his head up and says, you know we design album covers here, right? I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, I do. Um, um, uh, yeah, I was like, I know. I was like, that's why I'm here. He's like, yeah, but you, you're, not, you're not showing me that you want to design album covers for this work. I was like, okay. And he's like, I'll tell you what. He said, why don't you go and design some album covers and then come back to me. I was like, okay, but yeah, just pick some albums that you like and then design covers and then come back. I was like, okay. Um, that was kind of nice of him. Leaving. That, that, that yeah, quite I nice. Like, he's, <laughs> like you haven't done, you haven't like shown, you know, fundamentally it's what you want to do, but he's like, hey, why don't you just, you know, have a go and come back? That it doesn't yeah, feel like exactly. that would happen now, but anyway. <laughs> right, yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I, it's, I feel like now that's it's way more expected for designers to show the type of work they want to do, yeah. just because of the, the, the access that we have now, that we you know versus what we had back then. But I was really excited at that challenge, and I I swear to you, I remember it was maybe like three or four weeks, and um, um, and honestly, it was amazing. It was I like I had so much fun, and I remember and the honor. Um, I can't in crime there. Still mad at me because I don't have those covers anymore. I, ha- I don't know what I did with them, but basically it was like simply red and depression mode and fire and cannibals. It was all music I grew up with. The covers that I picked to work on, artists that I picked to work on. So I remember, I remember having these covers done. So then I remember trying to get another another email, another call with him rather. So I called up. Of course, the way life is, couldn't get a, couldn't get a shot, couldn't get another meeting with him. It was like in China, it was there, it was there. Couldn't get another meeting with him. I was, I was so gutted. I was like, you know, I had these things to show, couldn't get another meeting. Um, I was a little bit deflated, actually. But anyway, I ended up, so then I looked at, um, um, I want to say it was, um, um, what album was it? It might have been, I can't remember, it was Fear Black Planet, it was something, but I saw Def Jam and I saw Sony as well. Like, so it was like, at the time they were, I didn't know this, but they were uh, distributed by Sony. So anyway, I was like, let me call up Def Jam. So I called up Def Jam, again, got a meeting. And this one was actually even funny because when, um, I arrived at Def Jam on my portfolio. This guy named Stay Adams um, came out to greet me. He said, oh, I just leave your portfolio there. And he just walked off. 
<laughs> I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was like, no, no. Man, we're supposed to meet, you know. And he was like, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, that total, like, oh, okay. All right, come on. <laughs> it was one of those. I was like, bloody hell, dude. So, so of course, what I do, stupidly, is I show all my apple juice shit because I'm still <laughs> in this, like, because <laughs> I'm still in this world of, like, but that's the produced thing that mm. I physically did. And, you know, the, the album cover stuff that I did, I still have it. I have it, like, in another portfolio, but, you know, it's made up. So I'm thinking, yeah, let me show the professional shit. Um, um, and, dude, he was more, like, he was, dude, when I say the word uninterested doesn't cover it, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So he's like, <laughs> he's like, all right, thanks, thanks, man. I said, wait, hold on. <laughs> I got one other thing to show you. And sure enough, when I brought out that other little portfolio, little 8 by 11 with the sleeves and these little covers in it, he was like, huh. And he was really impressed that I actually had done those. And, um, yeah, that was that was the telling thing. And then maybe a week later, he called me and said, if I could come in for some freelance. And that day, it all started at Def Jam. And then the beautiful thing, by the way, I don't know if I've told you this before, but, um, you know, because Def Jam was um, um, distributed by Sony, you know, I actually, at one point, I had to take a bunch of mechanicals to Sony to, uh, to drop them off. So I went there with all these mechanicals underneath my arm. I've been there for about three months. And then who do I see the office? You know, the same guy. <laughs> so I, could, I couldn't resist. I just literally go and I knock and I, like, put my head around the corner. And for some reason... He looks at me and he's like, Gravelist. Like, I don't know why he remembers my last fucking name. Like, you know, no one barely can spell it, much less remember it. So I was like, yeah. I was like, hey, I was like, I tried to meet with you, but I couldn't. And, but I ended up getting a job at Def Jam, and it was because of that portfolio that you told me to make. It was because of the covers. He's like, really? I was like, yeah. I was like, you kind of got me a job in a way. And he was like, well, that's just great. And I was like, awesome. Um, so the, the the wonderful sort of full circle of that moment was after being at Def Jam for five years, um, I actually turned down a job from Sony and him to go to work at MCA. So it was sort of a beautiful, like, you know, circle of life moment there. <laughs> and I'm still friends with that guy at Sony, by the way, like 25 years later. Oh, that's that's cool. I think it shows all the different like swings and roundabouts and off ramps and stops and starts oh, yeah. and whatever oh, that goodness. you never know what's going to take Very you much. to to the next place. Absolutely, yeah. And so, so did Def Jam by that point had you know Nation of Millions and Beastie Boys and all that kind of stuff had happened. So, were you aware of you know it being a, a big place, or did it feel like an offshoot of a proper big place? Yeah, no, Def Jam was a family, but um, um, like. Absolutely. It was like, I love Def Jam. It's like, um, um, I, uh, it was, it was the perfect start for me because they really, it was really like a family back then. And, you know, the beautiful thing about Def Jam, it, it guided my whole sort of ethos in regards to uh, just being authentically who you are. Because that was the beautiful thing about Def Jam. Like, Def Jam didn't care, like, about needing to please people. You know, and that's, of course, hip-hop, right? That's what sort of changed culture. It was like, yeah. no, we're going to be who we are. And you either like it or you don't like it. And, of course, people were completely attracted to that. Um, um, I think like, we've kind of lost that a little bit in, you know, as time.
it was, um, you know, artists would come in there and hang out there, just to hang out. I remember having conversations with Q-Tip from Tribal Quest about lyrics, about his lyrics. And it wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't like a big deal. It was just like, oh, Q-Tip's in the building. And he's just, we're just talking. You know, I remember when Buster Rhymes was part of Leaders of the New School uh, back then. And we were just chatting away. It was like, this is a whole different world. And then you have people like Chuck B who were so into his artwork. Um, I remember staying there one night for like 12 o'clock at night. It's me and him sitting down. And he's like pushing me on, on work and getting this stuff done. And then it's time to leave. And he's like, Kenny, where you live? I was like, oh, you know, I live my dad's in the Bronx. And he's like, oh, come on, let me go. And he literally drove me to the Bronx. And I, you know, I'm like 21 years old. I don't know anything about these guys. And like, we're on like, I think, you know, the Triborough or something. And, you know, people see him just weird traffic and they're beeping him. And I'm like, wow, why are they beeping you, man? He's like, oh, you know, this is like, oh, this is like the music. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, cool. And then, yeah, he drives me home, you know? He's like, totally driving me home. Um, um, so, yeah, I was just part of something which I think helped that I just didn't really know, which was great, you know? So I was very, um, yeah, I was just going with the flow of the whole thing. But, no, it, I felt... You know, I, years later, I realized what I was part of that, uh, the early Def Jam years, and, you know, very thankful indeed. And, and so sure. what, what are some of the um, albums that you you did at that time? Oh, my goodness. Okay. So so the very first single I did was a LL Cool J single called The Booming System. Oh, yeah. From Mama Said Not You Up. <laughs> oh, don't forget it. <laughs> oh, don't forget it. It was the first technically designed thing that I did. And um, I worked on a few Public Enemy records, um, uh, Apocalypse 91. Uh, um, oh my God, it was so much. Public Enemy's greatest music. Um, 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 yeah, I worked on a lot of different stuff, actually. I, it's like, I'm trying to think. I like Red Man, Method Man. <laughs> was that What the Album? Um, Did you do What the Album? I, I, was, I wasn't on the album, but there's a dark side of one I actually physically designed myself. Oh, right. um, um, yeah. So it was really interesting. So the beautiful thing about Def Jam 2 is that everyone was very connected. So Russell Simmons was very connected to like Puff. And so we would work because we were the way so I worked for a company technically called The Drawing Board. So they were inside of Def Jam. And, but they were technically its own company. Uh, and it was run by these two guys, Adams and Steve Carr, and they both, they were, you know, they was a good friend of Russell's at the time, and um, so yeah, it was a just deal was unheard of that they had. Like basically, they they were paying them quarterly to deal with all Def Jam's work, but technically they were their own company. And um, so I, I was one of their first employees, basically. But because of the relationships, we were able to do stuff for Uptown, uh, and I remember doing this MD and the Boys Blue Funk record. And I remember Puff was literally in A&R at the time um, um, in the meeting. He was head of A&R. And he was so young, you just knew this kid was going to do something. Like, you just knew. You just felt it right off the bat. Um, and then we even worked with him when he started Bad Boy. Uh, and actually, the Notorious Big Record was technically the first album I did on a computer. Um yeah, so, yeah, the, the connection of that world was just really priceless at the time. 
Yeah, and so um, when you had to do, say, just for example, that that Big album, um, did you get played the album and like here's a sense of what it is, and you have a chat with him, and you go, "This is the, this yeah, is what we want to convey." What? Well, actually, uh, to be honest, it was really his idea right off the bat. He told us about the baby on the cover. He wanted to do that. Um, um, that was very specific from him. Um, but why and that? Again, it's just... And, well, I think it was the idea. It was... Because at first I was like, a baby on the cover. He's like, yeah, it's like ready to die. You know, <laughs> and the, the concept of that, um, um, I felt, was kind of mind-blowing. That, yeah. You know, with that title. That, that was the visual. Um, um, but I totally got it. And we were like, oh my God, that's, that's amazing. But then this is Puffy running his own thing, right? So, you know, who's going to tell him no, basically? So it was kind of great um, to sort of be a part of that um, um, when, when, that was, when that was happening. So, yeah. Um, um, but I guess in so some ways... Again, like um, a record cover is like a movie poster in that you're trying to encapsulate a lot of stuff and a story and a journey and a huge amount of artistic endeavor generally in one image is is do you think the two things are, are, are close to each other wait i'm sorry i missed that well, i was just saying that an, an album cover and a movie poster oh yeah no absolutely absolutely i think it's it's interesting because so i think the big difference with the album and the record with the album cover and the movie poster there is definitely similarities. I think it sort of depends. Like, I think with that album, there is way more personal attachment right. um, than, than a movie. You know, I feel like with a movie, I mean, don't get me wrong, I think, you know, there's independent films where, um, you know, where studios aren't involved and you're just dealing with the director. And then you have more of that type of situation happen. Because it's like with the album, a lot of times, you know, you're dealing with an artist. Um, and it becomes about like the, the feeling of something for that artist. You know what I mean? Like, it isn't necessarily connected to a marketing strategy per se. It's like it's more of like this. This, this image encapsulates what this album means to me. Where on movies, especially if you're dealing with a studio, it's very more strategic in terms of like where we want to go. You know, it's it's, it's less. Like, I've always said this with movies, it's like, you could do something that's absolutely beautiful and feels amazing, but if the message isn't right, yeah, they'll skip it over something much, much uglier and with, a, with the correct message, you know? Right. So, but so you did, um, if you did five or six years at Def Jam, in what any hip-hop fan will know is the golden age of hip-hop, um, yeah. what, what was, I mean, your career at the end of that must have been obviously much more elevated than, than it was at the beginning. And then, um, and what, what was your standing like in 95 and what did you then decide to do? Yeah. So in 95, I was in a good spot because, you know, I like say, and Steve, Steve was actually like barely even there. He was directing videos. Um, um, you know, Steve was more still hands on the ground, but you know, I was handing a, a lot of, a lot of the, a lot of the work. Um, and we had some, a couple more people and, you know, I, I, was, I was doing a lot. So for me, it became like, I, I was like, okay, this has been family, 100%. Um, but I feel like I need another challenge that um, almost kind of opposite to this, but still doing albums, but like in a totally different environment. And I knew this environment wasn't real. Does that make sense? Like, I knew it wasn't like the normal environment. Um, so I wanted to feel like what it was like in a 
you know, I say almost more corporate environment, but just like a more more of a realistic environment. Yeah. I knew Def Jam was was not that. So, so that's why the Sony thing came up, but and then the MCA thing came up in a bigger way because it was a, sort of a bigger job. Um, um, and uh, at the time, there was this thing called the Black Music Collective, um, and uh, Hank Shockley, who was actually a producer for Public Enemy, yeah. was going to be was going to be running it with this ex-president of Def Jam that I knew, and they met with me. I still remember that meeting, and they told me they wanted me to run this whole Black Music division um, creatively, and I was like, okay, that could be interesting. So I spoke to you know. And Steve about it, and those guys were incredibly supportive. You know, we've become really good friends, and um, you know, they, as much as it was, they didn't want to see me go. There was a, it was a really big stepping stone. So I ended up making that move to MCA, and uh, MCA was very much a, a Los Angeles company. But you know, I had to go out to LA a couple of times for meetings, but I didn't want to move to LA. So, and I just gotten married, and I was like. You know, in my contract, I, I want to make sure I'm staying in New York. Um, so I started there, and I was basically in New York. Like, basically, there was a very small New York office, and I was part of that. It just became harder because uh, you know there was like meetings going on at 6 p.m. New York time, meetings yeah. starting, and it just, it just got tough. And like, like I said, I just got married, so it was like, you know, I was I was at work till nine o'clock, like very regularly. And then I spoke to Diana and I was like, you know, I'm getting a lot of pressure about moving to LA, even though obviously my contract says I, I should I can stay in New York. And she was, you know, she's from New York, she's from New York, she's New York born and bred, but she's you know very adventurous. So I was like, maybe we should just try it, you know, just try it for a couple of years. And I was like, yeah, maybe. So we did, you know. So like '96, we moved to LA. Um, um, November '96. Um, moved to Los Angeles and it was way better you know like you know our lifestyle and time and all, all that stuff so it was definitely it was still a transition but it was, it was way better and and I think I don't know I think after we had our first kid um, it kind of shut down the idea of going back to New York uh, because it was like okay I don't really want to be on the subway with this stroller right now <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like yeah I don't know it was one of those things but um, but yeah, that's that's kind of how I ended up um, getting to getting to Los Angeles. And then, I mean, I guess there's a transition that goes from music to movies, and that was that around this time as well. Was it early on in the early? No, time? so so no, no. So that was so '96 um, in LA. Uh, I am knee deep in MTA music stuff, <laughs> like hardcore. I remember. I literally remember I was working on the new edition comeback album. <laughs> Home <laughs> again. Oh my goodness. That project was so stressful. You know, I actually had them fly Diana out as comfort. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, I literally, because I was like, at the time, I was um, in that, I remember I was actually, so I moved to LA first, and then Diana came in, like maybe like a month, two months later. So I moved to LA first. Um, so this, that was one of my first projects when I was out here, and I literally said, "You have to fly my wife out here for 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 you know like spousal support, like straight up." That's how stressful it was. Um, um, dealing with Bobby Brown and company, uh, 
trying to make that album happen. So it's funny, dealing with all the black music artists, to be quite frank, was a whole, you know, like, it was a whole different world, ball game than if I was dealing with, like, Blink-182. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was just, like, <laughs> a whole, it was a whole different ball game. So, but it was, you know, it was a great experience. And, you know, from from that, that world, that MTA world, I ended up meeting Roots, I ended up meeting Common, I ended up meeting a bunch of people that after I left there, I still ended up having relationships with and, and continued doing work for. So it was, a, it was, it was, and it was, it was a great sort of corporate experience too because I, I learned a lot on that side of things. You know that I could never have learned at Def Jam. So you know I spent five years at MCA, so it was kind of like it was so interesting. It was like I spent five years at MCA, I spent five years at Def Jam, so ten years total, sort of in the music music world, with two completely different experiences. Um, really kind of set me up well for eventually, you know, for us to start start the actual agency, um, which we did in 2000. And, um, and, you know, when we started it, um, it really, to be honest, Diana had um, my partner, she, she had a photography agency at the time. And to be honest, the goal really was, I was just going to freelance. I mean, I'm not even sure it was really going to be a company. I was going to freelance. And I, and I started off freelancing in a way and then, you know, it was like, yeah, we need to make it into a company. And then it was like, after about a month, she's like, Kenny, you have no money. She's like, have you been invoicing? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, invoicing? <laughs> she was like, oh my God. You know, like, so it, it became a, okay, basically, if we wanted to live, she was going to have to be part of this, basically. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, so we ended up saying, okay, let's do this together. And, you know, she put down her photography agency. We were like, let's just go all in on this. And that's how the company started. And but all we were doing at the time was just music. And that was all we did for like the first, I would say, pretty much almost all four, first four years. All we did was, was actual music. And that's when you did like Roots and, and, uh, and Common. Yeah, so we'd already had the, com- you know, relationships from MCA, but we continued just doing like the Roots and the Common and all our, and, and obviously now other, other artists other than MCA people anymore because we're, we're out on our own so we're doing you know like like Nelly Furtado and Usher and Babyface we're, you know Mariah Carey with Santana you know we were, it was all Third Eye Blind wow. um, you know yeah it was like we were doing all kinds of stuff so yeah it was fun it was fun times those were early days very fun and so so then you you at some point you've transitioned into movies <laughs> what happened yeah the so so that was really so Diana Diana's you know she's all business side she's a she's a vision side she's a sort of like I'm the like oh you know I'm like sort of the elf working at the station situation but she's you know like running it so she she knew right off the bat like around 2003 2004 that the music industry started to take a, 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 a real hit like a real hit and it was like she was feeling it in our feeds she was feeling it in all many in different ways and um, she's like, we're gonna have to pivot, you know. She's 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 classic key at doing that. I'm not as as flowy as that in terms of the pivot thing. So she was like, we have to pivot. Um, and you know, obviously because you know from experience, I knew whatever we did, it had to be something that I was into and had to be passionate about. So that's where the movies came up, you know. And it's kind of I've been passionate about movies, like I said, since back in the eighties. So movies made ton of sense um and so we're like, okay you know we'll, 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 let's let's try to do that so what was interesting about that was 
you know, we thought we were the shit because we did all this music stuff. Um, and we thought it was going to be just a walk in the park to show up for movie companies and be like, hey, we work with Mariah Carey, Baby Roots, you know, we thought we had all this sort of, of uh, agency here of coolness. And dude, they looked at us like, who's that? <laughs> like, they, like, we didn't realize the level of dog connection that it was going to be, like, the different world that it was going to be. Um, um, yeah, it was a different world, for sure. I think that's really, um, that's really interesting because a lot of people transition from one thing to another. And anyone who's not in L.A. may not realize that entertainment marketing is a totally different entire industry to to any other kind of marketing at all. And if you haven't done it, breaking in, even with your track record, would be yeah. difficult. Yeah, so difficult. And it's, um, you know, it just, yeah, yeah, and we had no clue. You know, we thought it was going to be a walk in the park. Um, um, and it really was not, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was really tricky and challenging and the, there's no executives that even looked like us. There's no executives that were like, you know, yeah, just the connections were just not there at all. Um, um, they were like gravelly, 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 <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it was like, you know, um, and it was, it was humbling, you know, because to be honest, you know, on, in the music world, uh, we were kind of up there in terms of work. And, you know, like, we, we, there wasn't like, you know, we were getting jobs like pretty easily and, you know, people knew us. And so the movie thing was, um, it was a humbling experience um, um, because we, yeah, we couldn't, couldn't get any traction at all. Um, and but the, and the, the traction we got, the first piece of traction we did get, of course, was the music related project which I guess made sense yeah. um, which was um, Jay-Z's Fate to Black uh, concert film oh yeah and um, that was our, technically our first poster that we got um, in 2004 um, and then you know we are to her credit you know she really pounded that pavement um, and you know just a lot of shut doors to be honest like a lot of like a lot of shut doors. Um, we had, um, you know, one of the things that we were also concerned about is how pigeonholy it Hollywood seemed. Um, you know, we, you know, we sort of did an inventory of the agencies that were out there, and we decided to really try to go for this thing. And we noticed that there was a couple of black-owned agencies, and we noticed that all the work they worked on was just black projects. And we're like, okay, that's not good. You know, mm. um, that's a bad sign. You know what I mean? Like, we're like, that's a bad sign. Yeah. That means that that's probably the only projects they can get. Um, uh, and then I remember Diana went to, I won't mention the name of the studio, but she went to the studio and she was showing our work. And obviously it's all album cover stuff. And she's like, so you guys are really urban, huh? that was the response urban is the, like, is the code yeah, word we're like yeah we're like oh shit you know like the other came back but she's like oh man these are different breeds like we're gonna have to strategize here so what we did um is the honor was like okay we were lucky we found uh, i know it's like saying gold 
more now that the Weinstein Company <laughs> uh, at the time, <laughs> the Weinstein Company at the time, uh, they were Miramax before the Weinstein Company. So Dion ended up getting a meeting over there. And the, the, the rumor is it was this really cheesy comedy called uh, Dolce Calhoun with Johnny Knoxville. And um, Dion somehow she got the opportunity to pitch on this thing. So we did, we did this, we did the work, and apparently the way the rumor has it is that Harvey um, was looking at work and was not happy at all, and you know I don't know if he was throwing shit or whatever it was, but he was basically just losing it. And then they were like, "No, no, no, wait, Harvey, we have some more stuff," you know, and it was our stuff. And then they, they, they showed him our stuff, and it I guess calmed him down, and he yeah. looked at it. And he turned the board over and he says, who's gravel lock? <laughs> <laughs> and from there on, we end up getting a bunch of rides to work. You know, it's almost like, I guess Harvey like gave it his, you know, approval in a way. And we end up getting a bunch of, and what was cool about that, because that's really how we started, is that they didn't have one project with a black person in sight. Oh, yeah. So it was like everything we were working on was cool and indie and, like, you know, so it helped that it was like we kind of started off in the independent film mode, which made a ton of sense for us anyway, just aesthetically, um, because you can get away with a little bit more. But basically, you know, I remember um, um, as we started doing more of that work, you know, we got more independent films. So all of a sudden we started to become a little bit like, oh, these are the cooler independent film guys. And we sort of grew with that movement of independent film. And then when independent film started breaking into mainstream, then mainstream companies started coming to us saying, oh, who did that factory bill post? So maybe they can do. So we really rode that train. And it was great because, you know, again, you know, I remember a big year. We had a huge year in 2009 because we worked on Inglourious Bastards, which is our first Britain film. Um, and then we worked on... I remember Alvin and the Chipmunks, uh, the sequel, and we worked on Avatar. <laughs> so it was like, you know, that right there sort of started to implement us as like, okay, we're really in this game now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like in terms of like the projects that we're working on. So I remember that being a, an interesting, like a very telling year for us because, you know, like, we had something Indian cool, but still commercial with the Glorious Bastards, and you really had massively commercial with uh, Chipmunks and then Avatar. So that sort of started to really get the ball rolling for us. And does that mean like you're building up relationships with? Because you've done other, yeah, you've done Hate for Late, and, you know. Yeah, we started to build relationships. And what was really interesting about that too is that Diana. I mean, this is going to sound really crazy, but Diana, like after she sort of stuffed out the the uh, environment, was like, hey, we need to like just keep keep you on the phone for a while. <laughs> she's like, we don't need you to show up to meetings because she's like, we need to just get the work out there. Um, um, and so these guys can't like immediately try to pigeonhole us because we're black. And I was like, okay, fair enough. So we kind of did that, you know. I mean, some people just, you know, it's interesting. So I think around 2011, 2012, when we were just getting way more work, and then she was like, I think it's safe for you to start showing up for meetings. And interestingly enough, you know, 
going back to my original back 1987 New York days, I had a couple of those, you know, because yeah. again, I heard my voice on that, the speakerphone, and then I showed up finally for a meeting, and it was a little, again, like, oh wow, like, a little bit of shock. So I hadn't really moved that far there. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> you know, 1987 to 2010. Um, but we were sort of kind of far gone in terms of the work, so it was very, you know, it was more of a shock and then let's get on with it kind of situation so um, uh, but yeah so uh, you know we just started to grow from there and um, I remember um, you know as we continued growing and you know we sort of just you know the companies just started to grow we started to get more people and, and, and things to happen I remember 2015 you know we met Spike and I remember him coming over to our studio and one of the first things he said was like where have you guys I mean, I think that I think it is fascinating, but partly because Spike's posters are always so good, and he clearly has a vision for how he wants. Oh yeah, he loves posters. Yeah, he absolutely loves posters. So yeah, he's so into it. But um, <laughs> just out, just because you still get quite a lot of African American um, inverted commas yeah, urban stuff, and, it's, and yeah, and it's different now because you know we feel now we can actually bring some culture to it. We have like you know more agency, more respect, more influence in terms of the work because I think, you know, I had a conversation about this recently. It's like, you know, most of the marketing departments, especially the major studios, are filled with white people. Um, So, the reality is when there's a project that is very much black culture centered, especially if it's something that's about, you know, fucked up shit happening to black people, a lot of the times what you get is you end up getting this like, hey, how can we make things hopeful? You know? (laughs) (laughs) like, Like, that's always like the Absolutely. Um, I'd really like to, to drill into like the whole movie thing in, in a bit more detail. Um, my, my problem is Word, WordPress has a thing about going over an hour on my thing. It makes me do another episode. So maybe we could arrange to have another chat at some point where yeah, yeah. we actually dive right into, you know, how did Bohemian Rhapsody's poster come about or what did you do with the five bloods or something like that? Um, sure, but but sure. in terms of the story of how you got from, you know, uh, 
art school or even pre-art school in East London to, you know, designing whatever the, the next uh, Star Wars poster is. Um, I think it's 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 been a really amazing kind of journey and story with lots of really great lessons for people about, you know, not giving up, uh, you know, making your own luck in a lot of ways, pivoting, but being prepared to, you know, accept that, you know, there's going to be some hard work in the pivot, perhaps, and sure. you know, getting to a great place because the talent's always there and it's always going to shine through. Absolutely, absolutely. So massive thanks for, for the hour we've had, Kenny. And um, like yeah, I said, yeah, no, we'll do it. We'll do it again, man, for sure. Yeah, just work. You can totally work out with Leanne, and I'll, we'll get some more time in there. Absolutely. Okay, that'd be brilliant. And um, best of luck to West Ham staying up. I'm keeping an eye on the results. Oh and... my goodness, man! It's, <laughs> you know, if we'd won, if we'd won that Burnley game, uh-huh. I would have said, okay, I think fifty percent we're going to stay up. But man, I don't know, dude. I do not know. It is uh, scary times for the Hammers, dude. It's like 2020. That's all I need is just West Ham to go there. <laughs> just to add to it. Like, I don't know. We'll see. The good news is that we're playing the rest of our games. We have one man in that game, which obviously we'll lose. But the rest of our games are at least with people around us. So that's the only good news. Okay. We well, I'll keep an eye on that. And if you want to keep an eye on whether Arsenal can manage to go from mid-table to slightly above mid-table, um, we'll, we'll work that one out. <laughs> oh, my okay. All right, mate. Cheers, uh, Kenny. We'll talk, yeah? Yeah, thanks right, a lot. Cheers, man. Cheers, man. Bye. Bye. Later. Bye. podcast that watch Christmas.